All right. Yesterday we talked about promises. The promise that God made in the Garden of Eden uh, that one of Eve's children would eventually crush the head of the lying snake. And the promise that God would never destroy the world again with the flood. And the promise that God would give Abraham many, many children and that he would bless the whole world through Abraham's family. We talked about promises yesterday. Today we're going to talk about presence. The presence of God. When we left our people of God yesterday, they were in a world of hurt, remember? Joseph had been sold into slavery by his bad guy brothers, but he didn't let it keep him down. His brothers uh, found him in Egypt and they were forgiven, but they still had to live in a foreign land to stay alive. And we'll find as the week goes along that this is somewhat of a theme for God's people. Today, however, a lot of time has passed when we pick up the story and we'll find that Moses has this one expectation of the Lord. In Exodus 33, we're going to spend a lot of time in Exodus. You can go ahead and open your Bible to Exodus 33. Uh, in Exodus 33:14, the Lord says, My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. Then Moses says to him, If your presence does not go with us, do not send us up from here. I love that about Moses. He's like, If you don't go, I'm not going. I pretty much told that to God when Ellen asked me to come to Michigan. I'm like, Michigan, Detroit. Does God even go to Detroit? (laughs) And you know, let me tell you what I found out when I came to Bayshore. Yeah. Yeah. There are people here who are head over heels in love with Jesus. So, Uh, I want to start today with Psalm 106 because it summarizes a history of the people of Israel during this time. Y'all, it's an up and down roller coaster ride. Sometimes they're good, sometimes they're faithful, they believe God's promises. Sometimes they are faithless, they're bad, they're idolatrous, they're selfish. They deserve to be destroyed. And Moses has to step in between them and God. And at those times, he's a picture of Jesus. He's a mediator. And it's one of those times when we see Jesus on the pages of the Old Testament. So uh, it's when Moses is a reflection of our Savior, we talked about how so many times we see Jesus uh, on every page of the Bible. And so this time in history is just up and down, in and out. The people are fickle, but God is not. God is faithful, and his love toward them is strong. And he continually proves that God wants a relationship with mankind. The thing I want to point out over and over and over again this week is that God wants a relationship with you. He wants a friendship with you. I'm going to like skim and pick out what I want to read out of Psalm 106. You can look at it if you want to. I'm just going to read lines from Psalm 106 starting with verse 7. Our ancestors in Egypt were not impressed by the Lord's miraculous deeds. They soon forgot his many acts of kindness to them. Instead, they rebelled against him at the Red Sea. Even so, he saved them to defend the honor of his name and to demonstrate his mighty power. He commanded the Red Sea to dry up. He led Israel across the sea as if it were a desert. So he rescued them from their enemies and redeemed them from their foes. Then the water returned and covered their enemies. Not one of them survived. 
Then the people believed his promises and they sang his praise. Yet how quickly they forgot what he had done. They wouldn't wait for his counsel. In the wilderness their desires ran wild, testing God's patience in that dry wasteland. So he gave them what they asked for. He sent a plague along with it. The people in the camp were jealous of Moses and envious of Aaron, the Lord's holy priest. I'm going to jump down to verse 19. The people made a calf at Mount Sinai. They bowed before an image made of gold. They traded their glorious God for a statue of a grass-eating bull. They forgot God, their Savior, who had done such great things in Egypt, such wonderful things. So he declared he would destroy them. But Moses, his chosen one, stepped between the Lord and the people. Sound like anybody you know? Any mediator you're aware of? He begged him to turn from his anger and not destroy them. Drop down to verse 43. Again and again he rescued them, but they chose to rebel against him. Drop down to verse 45. God remembered his covenant with them and relented because of his unfailing love. He even caused their captors to treat them with kindness. So this gives us an idea of what this period of history looked like that we're going to be covering today, the, path, the pathway to the promised land. Y'all, it was a roller coaster ride up and down. This pathway could have taken about two weeks, but because of their willful, unsteady ways. How long does it take? 40 years. 40 years. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for these people who want to know you better, who have come to Bible study because they love you and they want to know your word. I pray, Father, that you would bless us and that through the power of the Holy Spirit, you would anoint this message and use it to change the way that we live. That can only happen, God, all is vain unless the spirit of the Holy One comes down. So Holy Spirit, would you come and anoint these stories and these scriptures, your word, and uh, make it something that makes a difference in our lives, please, Father. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. So yesterday, we made it from creation to the end of the book of Genesis and the end of the story of Joseph. Let's look at these icons. Um, we talked about um, Adam and Eve, and how the snake came and lied. They listened to the wrong voice. Uh, we talked about Noah and how God sent that promise. We talked about Abraham and another promise. We talked about the 12 guys, the 12 uh, tribes of Israel, and then we ended up with um, all of them being down in uh, uh, Egypt. Okay, so I worked on a Mother's Day out down in uh, Johnson County, Kansas one time, and um, I was one day sitting on the floor at the end of the day reading a, a, a little golden book to a little boy. It was about Moses and the bulrushes and how the princess came and she um, <clears throat> found this baby and rescued him. And I'm just reading this little golden storybook to this little boy. And his grandmother came to pick him up, and she was all worried because I was reading this book about Moses to this little boy. And she said, oh, oh, you can't read that to him. His, his parents are Jewish. 
And I said, it's about Moses. And she said, oh, but they're Jewish. And I said, it's about Moses. And the, but they're Jew. And obviously, she didn't know anything about Moses because Moses was about as Jewish as you get, right? I think she, maybe she thought I was reading about Jesus. But anyway, <laughs> it was pretty funny. Uh, so well, as we're going to find out today, Moses is the guy who drafted the Ten Commandments. And I'm not telling you anything you don't already know, but she didn't know. <laughs> it was pretty funny. All right, Exodus 1, 1. These are the names of the sons of Israel who went to Egypt with Jacob, each one with his family. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. The descendants of Jacob numbered 70 in all. Joseph was already in Egypt. Now Joseph and all his brothers and all that generation died, but the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful. They multiplied greatly, increased in numbers, and became so numerous that the land was filled with them. So this uh, verse 7 tells us that the Israelites were fruitful and multiply, and that echoes the blessing that God had given to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. It reminds us that God instructed them to multiply and fill the earth. Now, in between verses 6 and 7, about 400 years have gone by, and verse 8 tells us that a new king, to whom Joseph meant nothing, he didn't know who Joseph was, came to power in Egypt. And the Israelites have grown to be a group of about 2 million people, and the new Pharaoh is afraid of all these Israelite people. So he attempts to destroy them by working them to, get to death. They're slaves, they're getting worked to death, and in an attempt to slow the growth of the nation, remember that he finally orders that all of the baby boys get thrown into the Nile River. So the people of Israel cry out to God for help. They are crying out uh, for a deliverer, and God responds to them. An Israelite mother, whose name is Jacobed, obeys the Pharaoh and throws her baby boy into the Nile River, but first she puts him in a basket. And it floats down to the Pharaoh's own daughter. And this baby grows up in Pharaoh's household, and God uses him to eventually defeat Pharaoh. It's a long story, and because we are going like a rocket through the Old Testament, right? I'm going to skip this story that you already know, but I'm going to read a quote to you from this book, by Kevin DeYoung. And I want to say this to you, to y'all, because um, I'm using a lot of illustrations that came from two books. I'm using uh, The Biggest Story by Kevin DeYoung, and I'm using the Jesus Storybook Bible by Sally Lloyd-Jones. Um, just took their, their, their illustrations, took photos of them, and I'm putting them up here, so I, I want to give them credit for that. So from The Biggest Story, here is a quote. Uh, well, Delivering them from famine was one thing. That's when Israel's family was still pretty small. Israel, by the way, was Jacob's new name. I guess everyone needed two names back then, but hundreds of years later, the family was huge. How would God save a couple million people from slavery? It's not like he could just turn the Nile River into blood and send frogs and gnats and flies and disease and boils and hail and locusts and darkness and death until the king of Egypt let them go. Actually, that's 
exactly what God did. Aren't these great illustrations? We have a living one here at Bayshore. <laughs> right. <laughs> So unlike Pharaoh, God provides a means of escape through the blood of the Lamb. And the night before they escaped from Egypt, the Israelites sacrificed a young spotless lamb and houses with door frames covered with the blood of the Lamb were passed over and the firstborn son was spared. So every year since, the Israelites reenact that night to celebrate God's justice and His mercy. But Pharaoh, because of his pride, loses his son and then is compelled to let the Israelites leave. Now, remember how everything points to Jesus? Let's think for a minute about if you put, let's use this fireplace. If you put blood on the doorposts, on the sides of the door, and if you put the, the blood of the spotless lamb on the top and it drips down right here, and you put a line in between where the blood is, what shape does that make? Yeah. There's Jesus on every page, y'all. We can find Jesus in the Old Testament. He is our spotless lamb. He is the reason that death passes over us. So as you know, after they leave, Pharaoh changes his mind and he sends his Egyptian army after them. And the showdown at the Red Sea takes place. But God has given them this word of instruction and encouragement. He says, oh, I didn't put it up there. Fear not. Now look at Exodus 14, 13. Exodus 14, 13. Fear not. Stand firm and to see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You have only to be silent. That's a good scripture right there. Fear not. Stand firm. The Lord will fight for you. You have only to be silent. So the Red Sea splits. The Israelites walk through. The Red Sea closes, the Egyptian army is drowned, and there's a praise party on the other side. But here's the thing, y'all. You know how long the praise party lasts? <laughs> Two verses. <laughs> I will sing unto the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously, the horse and rider thrown into the sea. Yeehaw! Two verses. <laughs> Two verses. And then they were thirsty. And the water was bitter, and so they started complaining and whining and acting like babies. But Moses cried out to the Lord for them, and the Lord showed him a tree. And when he threw the tree into the water, the water, the water became drinkable. So the Lord came through for them there, and he promised them basically, if you will obey me, I will take care of you. I am the Lord who heals you. And he led them to a place where there was plenty of water and date palms. So the way the Lord led them was so amazing and supernatural. See Moses there in the middle, there's a pillar of fire and a pillar of smoke. The smoke led them by the day and the fire led them by night. They followed that. 
and they knew which way the Lord was leading. Isn't that cool? Wouldn't it be awesome if God would lead us that clearly? If we could just see exactly where he wanted us to go? He leads us. It's just not always that visible. But he does put his spirit inside of us to lead us. So they traveled more, they ran out of provisions and started complaining again. They were literally wishing that they had died back in Egypt. I'm telling you, these people were psycho. <laughs> so the provision of manna and quail began, and the, water ran out, and the water came out of the rock. And then there was the Amalekite battle where Moses got tired, and his, when his hands were up, they were winning, and his hands got tired. So remember, Aaron and Hur came, and they held his arms up. A great picture of us being encouragement to our brothers and sisters, right? Uh, and then there was the story about Jethro, his father-in-law. There's really good Bible stories, and we're flying like a rocket to get through all this history today. Forty years of history in about an hour. So then they get to Mount Sinai, and Moses goes up and literally talks to God and gets the Ten Commandments. Now, the purpose of the Ten Commandments was to give us a standard for serving God obediently. Our salvation does not hang on the commandments. The point of the law is to show us how much we need a Savior. And after the Ten Commandments comes a whole lot of other rules, rules about the altar, about what to eat, what not to eat, about sacrifices and the Sabbath and all of the stuff in the book of Leviticus. In the middle of all the laws, God invites his people to make a sanctuary. He wants his people to make a temporary dwelling place because God wants to dwell with mankind. There it is again. God still wants a relationship with his people. He wants a friendship with us. He wants you to know him. He gives very specific instructions. Exodus chapter 40 tells us how the Ark of the Covenant is separated by the, from the rest of the tabernacle with a veil. Adam talked this morning about this veil and how it separated, um, how once a week the high priest would enter the Holy of Holies, the very central part of the Ark of the Covenant. He would go inside and make an offering on behalf of the people. And according to tradition, um, they would tie a rope around him, and there were bells around the bottom of the, uh, the priest's robe because they wanted to be able to hear him moving around because if he hadn't done everything exactly right, he would drop dead because he couldn't approach the holiness of God with anything, any sin. So he had, to, he had to wash exactly right, he had to sacrifice exactly right. Everything had to be done exactly right so that the high priest had done everything so that he could approach the presence of God, right? So they had a rope tied around him in case he died. They couldn't go in there and drag his carcass out. They had to pull it out like this, right? So we used to have this lake house, and uh, this lake house had a pier that... Uh, where there was electricity out to, you know, let the boats up and down and all that kind of stuff. But the, the, the electrical cable would uh, plug in underneath uh, to this concrete uh, patio. And sometimes, because of the way the waves would go and stuff, this thing would come unplugged, right? And it would have to be replugged in. And so um, 
with the water there and the electricity there, it wasn't always the safest thing, you know, to kind of replug it in. And I have never been accused of being safe. And so <laughs> I remember one time it came, the, the electricity wasn't working, the lights wouldn't come on, the boats wouldn't go up and down. And I was like, I know what the problem is, I know what the problem is. Here, listen, give me that ski rope and give me that tube. And so I tied this ski rope around myself and I floated in this tube and I made my way over to us. Listen, if I get electrocuted, just pull me out. Just like, I'm like one of the priests, okay? I'm going in, I'm going in. Obviously, I didn't get electrocuted because I'm here today, right? But that, yes, glory, glory. So anyway, it was a great honor and a holy responsibility to get to go into the Holy of Holies. The tabernacle had this, and the temple that would be built later had this Holy of Holies, right? Let me read this to you. This is in my lap. Let me. So the presence of God remained shielded from man behind a thick curtain during the history of Israel. However, Jesus' sacrificial death on the cross changed that. When he died, the curtain in Jerusalem temple was torn in half from the top to the bottom. Only God could have carried that out because the veil was too high for human hands to have reached it, too thick to have torn it. The Jerusalem temple, a replica of the wilderness tabernacle, had a curtain that was about 60 feet in height, 30 feet in width, and 4 inches thick. Furthermore, it was torn from top, the top down, meaning this act must have come from above. As the veil was torn, the Holy of Holies was exposed. God's presence was now accessible to all. Shocking as this may have been to the priests ministering in the temple that day, it is indeed good news to us as believers because we know that Jesus' death has atoned for our sins and made us right before God. The torn veil illustrated Jesus' body broken for us, opening the way for us to come to God. As Jesus cried out, it is finished on the cross, he was indeed proclaiming that God's redemptive plan was now complete. The age of animal offerings was over. The ultimate offering had been sacrificed. We can now boldly enter into God's presence. Hebrews 6.19 says, The inner sanctuary behind the curtain where Jesus, who went before us, has entered on our behalf. Isn't that awesome? I just jumped to the last page. <sighs> but it was so cool. That's so good. All right. <clears throat> A lot of things happen during this 40-year journey. God provides for his people miraculously, but their clothes don't wear out, their shoes don't wear out. God provides a special kind of food for them called manna. When they get tired of only having manna, they complain again, so God gives them meat by providing quail, meatloaf. <laughs> and even though God miraculously provides for them daily, they're still whiners. They're complaining. They wish they were back in Egypt. What's the matter with these people? They forgot how miserable life was when they had been enslaved and abused by the Egyptians. And over and over again, Moses has to plead with the Lord to keep him from losing his patience with this grumbling and bellyaching bunch of people. There are times when they openly rebel against God and worship idols even though they've been commanded not to. But there's also times when they say, all that the Lord has said we will do and be obedient. So they're not all the time being bad. They kind of remind me of me. 
Much like we are today, their spirit was willing, but their flesh was very, very weak. Moses was a strong and courageous leader. And he had a second-in-command guy whose name was Joshua, who was also very brave and very godly. We're going to spend some time today talking about a habit that Moses had. And uh, we're going to talk about uh, uh, kind of a life message of mine. This is a soapbox that I get on. This is where we're going to switch over from our timeline, our icons, to kind of the application part of Bible study today. And so um, if you would like to stand, uh, we're going to sing a worship song, and then we're going to switch over. I'm going to talk today about the importance of having a daily appointment with God. And Pastor Kevin is going to pass out um, a handout that you can take notes on this handout if you'd like to. Um, let's see. I didn't, you know what? I'm going to give somebody else the joy of doing the. Uh... Praise God. Ah, yes. <laughs> it's the bottom one. It, this okay. one right there will make it so advance. Yeah, which is weird, isn't it? Yeah. Maybe that's. Let's give Pastor Kevin the benefit of the doubt. That's the reason it didn't work yesterday. Let's see. <clears throat> Starts out kind of low, but we'll get to it. Bless the Lord, oh my soul, oh my soul. Worship His holy name. Sing like never before, oh my soul, I worship your holy name. The sun comes up, it's a new day dawning. It's time to sing your song again. Whatever may pass and whatever lies before me, let me be singing when the Bless the Lord, oh my soul, oh my soul, worship his holy name, sing like never before, oh my soul, I'll worship your holy name. Okay, hold on a minute, I don't like that key, A, B, C, D, E, F, G, A, B, C. Bless the Lord, oh my soul, oh my soul, worship his holy name. Sing like never before, oh my soul, I'll worship your holy name. You're rich in love and you're slow to Bless the Lord, oh my soul, oh 
for me because that's my favorite color. Moses' practice, Exodus 33:7, out of the New Living Translation. It was Moses' practice to take the tent of meeting and set it up some distance from the camp. Everyone who wanted to make a request of the Lord would go to the tent of meeting outside the camp. Whenever Moses went out to the tent of meeting, all the people would get up and stand in the entrances of their own tents, and they would all watch Moses until he disappeared inside. As he went into the tent, the pillar of cloud would come down and hover at its entrance while the Lord spoke with Moses. When the people saw the cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, they would stand and bow down in the front of their own tents. Inside the tent of meeting, the Lord would speak to Moses face to face as one speaks to a friend. Afterward, Moses would return to the camp, but the young man who assisted him, Joshua, son of Nun, would remain behind in the tent of meeting. Moses had a practice, a routine, a habit of doing this thing, and whenever he went out to the tent of meeting, the Lord would come in a form of a cloud, and he would meet with him, and Scripture says they would talk to each other as one speaks to a friend. Can you even imagine? Notice that Scripture says that they spoke to each other as one speaks to a friend, and that it was a habit. It was a rhythm in Moses' life. He would stop what he was doing 
and do this in a regular, on a regular basis. And also notice that the people would stop what they were doing and they would go to the doorway of their tent and they would bow down too. I love it that it was routine. Moses knew it was important to his own relationship with God and that it was important to his nation. And the people noticed too. I want you to know that when you have an appointment with God, when you have a quiet time, when you have daily devotions, not only will it affect your life, it's going to affect the people around you. Your spouse will benefit. Your children will benefit. Your boss will benefit. Your coworkers and friends are going to benefit because it's going to affect your joy. It's going to affect your peace. It's going to affect your general well-being if you will have a daily time with God. It's going to affect you big time. And therefore, it's going to affect the people around you. But look at what one guy did. Look at what Joshua did. He never left. He stayed in the presence of God. He went all the way to the tent of meeting, and he got where Moses and God were meeting, and when Moses left, Joshua didn't leave. He chose to stay in God's presence. No wonder God used him when the people had to go on to the promised land after Moses died. Now, I'm going to take a detour. I'm going to go on a rabbit trail on purpose, okay? I love this. I heard this on a podcast um, a few months ago, and... uh, it, it, it was so exciting to me that I have to tell you about it. All my life, when I've gotten to the part of the story in Exodus about how Moses dies, sorry, spoiler alert, Moses dies, and, um, and God doesn't let him go into the promised land. He just has to go up on the mountain and look over and see this is where the promised land is and you don't get to go. And I'm like, God... Come on, man. I mean, he, all he did was just hit the rock instead of speaking to the rock, and you're not going to let him go. And he led the wine and complaining people all the way through the promised land, and now he doesn't get to go? That just seems so unfair. So this lady on this podcast said, Moses did get to go to the promised land. I'm like, what? What Bible are you reading out of, chick? Right? Think about this for a minute. Remember in the New Testament... The Mount of Transfiguration, when Jesus and Peter, James, and John go up to the Mount of Transfiguration and Jesus is transfigured, who is there with him? Moses! Where is the Mount of Transfiguration? In the Holy Land, that's the Promised Land. Moses got to go to the Promised Land. And if you were going to go to the Promised Land, would you want to go with a bunch of whining, and complaining Israelites? Or would you want to go with the glorified Jesus? I'm choosing the glorified Jesus. Moses got to go to the promised land, y'all. So if you are in the middle of a situation that you think is unfair and that God has, that he's holding out on you, he's not. He knows when he wants you somewhere and when he's going to get you there. Trust him. Trust him. He's going to get you to the promised land. It may not look like what you think it's going to look like, but trust him. He knows what he's doing. Our sovereign God knows what he's doing. All right, back to quiet time. Here we go. Moses had a practice, a routine, a habit, a rhythm, and it was good for him, and it was good for his people. Look at all those scriptures I didn't show you. 
Your daily time with God will benefit you as well as the people around you. It's of great benefit to seek the face of God. The people around you will be blessed. You know, we make appointments with our doctors, our barbers, our bosses, our friends. Sometimes, if, if life is incredibly busy, we have to make appointments with our spouses. I actually made an, a telephone appointment this morning to meet with my son this afternoon at 12 o'clock Central Standard Time. I think that's like 1 o'clock with y'all, right? So I'm going to talk to my son at 1 o'clock this afternoon. Have you ever thought about making an appointment with God? Make a standing appointment with him, knowing that when the time comes, you're going to stop everything else and be with him. Here's the cool thing about God. He'll never stand you up. He will always be there. He'll never forget you. He'll never be late. And he will never once glance at his iPhone while he's talking to you. He doesn't care about the football scores. He doesn't care how many likes he got on Instagram. He is not going to look at his phone. He's waiting and longing for you to draw near to him. James 4, 8 says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Psalm 73, 28 says, but as for me, the nearness of God is my good. I've made the Lord God my refuge. Somebody said, one of the children last night said, Bayshore is a safe place. Yeah. It's true. But let me tell you something. It's God at Bayshore that is a safe place. It's drawing near to God is what our safe place is. He is our refuge. I can be quiet and at rest when God is near. I can know that everything is going to be okay. It's kind of like knowing Daddy's home. So the weird, this weird thing happened to me uh, last winter. My husband likes for it to be like super pitch black dark at night when we sleep. So he'll roll up his t-shirt and put it in front of the clock so there's no light, you know. And so I, I plug in my, my phone to, to charge it, but he'll cover all, all the LED lights up, right? So it's just pitch black dark. So when I get out of the bed, you know, to go to the bathroom, I have to like do this deal, right? To find my way to the bathroom. And so this one night, I realized when I bumped into something that I felt... I felt clothing and not like I was in the wrong place, clearly. And then I felt skin. I felt somebody. And I was like, oh, I don't know where I am. I don't know where I am. And I felt him grab my hand and he said, it's me. He w I, I just had circumnavigated the bed. I found myself, and fortunately it was his hand. And, and, he, and he said, it's, it's me. You're right here. I'm with you. Everything is okay. It's going to be okay. And I was like freaking out. Ah, I don't know. Anyway, <laughs> it gave me such peace to know that where I was and that I was, you know, with my husband. And so that's the thing about God. When I get up in the morning and I, I find my Bible and I find the presence of the Lord, it's like he's saying, Jeannie, I'm right here. I know everything that's going on in the world. I know you listened to the news this morning. But listen. I know your children go to public school. I know what happens in public school, but I've got this. You don't have to worry about anything because I'm God. And I've got this. Everything is going to be okay. Everything is okay. I've got your hand. So when I have an appointment with God, 
I know that I am safe. When I draw near to God, the nearness of God is our good. It is good to have a friendship with God. Adam and Eve had a friendship with God. They walked with him and talked with him. And listen, if I'm talking about mornings and having a quiet time with God in the morning, that's only because I like morning. If you like nighttime, the Jewish day started at sunset. If you're good at nighttime, do nighttime. If you are a young mom and you need nap time to be when you have your quiet time, do nap time. Whatever works for you, just do it. Make sure that you have some time during the day when you set aside time, I'm going to be with God. This is when I'm going to meet with God because his nearness is good for me. My granddaddy lived in Coosa County, Alabama for several years after he retired. He'd been a, a, a pharmacist in uh, the college town of Auburn, Alabama. And after retirement, he moved to the country community of Speed, Alabama. And he and Nanny bought a house just right down the road from my Uncle Billy. And down the road from Nanny and Granddaddy lived an old black man named Mark. And Granddaddy and Mark became best friends and they did everything together. Every day they worked together cutting wood and fixing fences and feeding the hogs. Whatever needed to be done, Granddaddy and Mark did together. And they were just really, really good friends. In January of 1981, Granddaddy died unexpectedly. An aneurysm burst and he passed away. I was going to school in Manhattan, Kansas at the time and I remember our family loaded up in the car and we headed down to Alabama to go to the funeral. And the long drive was filled with stories of being at Nanny and Granddaddy's house. What happened the night before the funeral, I will remember forever. We were at the funeral home for the visitation and I remember looking across and seeing Mark standing over the casket where my granddaddy lay. He was, he was so very sad and he just looked down into the casket and he was saying over and over again, he was a good man. He was a good man. And it just broke my heart to see Mark grieving. Well, the year was 1981, but this was rural Alabama. And although the civil rights movement had taken place two decades earlier, it was still not accepted in this southern country culture for a black man to go into a white man's church. And Mark knew that he would not be able to attend the funeral the next day. So he knew this was his only opportunity to say goodbye to his best friend. So the next day, when Nanny and Mama and Uncle Billy got into the funeral home limousine and the rest of us climbed into cars to go to the service, we drove past Mark's house. And I remember looking out the window and seeing on that red Alabama clay, Mark had gotten up and he had put on his Sunday suit. And he came out and he stood, he had his hat in his hand, and he bowed his head as the cars came by to honor his friend. And what he was doing was he was saying, I don't care about man-made tradition, Mr. Phillips. You are my friend, and you are worth getting up and getting dressed for. Our friendship is worth it. You're worth the time that it takes. You're worth the effort that it takes for me to get up and show you this respect. So when we get up and have a daily quiet time, it pleases our Father. He wants so much 
to spend time with us. He wants to speak his grace and his kindness and his love and his friendship into our lives. And as we set aside time to be with him, I believe that it blesses our Father. He enjoys our company. He wants to be our friend. So when we make that choice to get up early or to stay up late or to spend alone time with God, what we're saying is, Lord Jesus, my friendship with you is valuable. You are worth the effort. I want to spend time with you. Much like Mark did for Granddaddy, we can say to our Father, you are worth it. Time with you is time well spent. You're worth any effort that I might make. Now I want to point something out that's, that I feel like is important when it comes to spiritual disciplines. We do these spiritual disciplines like fasting or uh, Bible study or meditation or serving, but we, we're not doing these disciplines to make God love us more. We can't make him love us any more than he already does, right? He's already head over heels in love with us. So God is your friend not because you have daily devotions. You have daily devotions because he's your friend. We're not trying to jump through a bunch of hoops and earn some points. That's not the way it works. So I'm, I'm going to give you five benefits of having a daily quiet time. Uh, and I've got a, uh, so, so we were in, uh, we were in one of those all-you-can-eat uh, buffets, right? I have two children, uh, Philip and Maggie. This was many years ago. Maggie was about six years old, and I told them that they could, uh, we had, they had had their, you know, required number of real foods, and so I told them they could go to the dessert buffet. So Maggie went to the dessert buffet and who knows how many tastes of cookies and ice cream and cake and pie with her little tummy crammed full of all of that. She climbed up into her daddy's lap face to face with her dad and she said, I've never met a morsel of icing I didn't like. <laughs> so Beth Moore says, when we get our emotional needs met in our quiet time alone with Jesus, then any affirmation that any other person might give to us is just whipped cream. It's extra. So when we get up and spend time alone with the Lord and he fills us up with his love, then we're not needy and we're not grasping and waiting for other people to tell us how great we are. Then I don't need my husband to fill me up because I'm already full. I don't need my children to tell me how awesome I am because God has already told me how awesome he thinks I am. And let me tell you something, he thinks I'm super cool. <laughs> right? And he knows that you are so incredibly awesome and precious to him. And when you get up and read his word, he tells you, he affirms us, he affirms us, he, affir he builds us up because it's true. He created you to be his friend. Every morning when I get up, I, I go to the kitchen, I get my coffee, I immediately find my Bible, my devotional books. I spend my first minutes alone with the Lord. I've been doing this literally for decades. There have been seasons when my children were at home and I've had different kinds of jobs where I had to get up really super early to do this, but it was worth it to me because I was able to allow the Lord an opportunity to pour his love out on me, to lavish his love all over my spirit so that when my family got up, my emotional tank had been filled by the Holy Spirit. It's a good, good thing. Psalm 1715 says this. Oh, and I in righteousness, I will see your face. 
When I awake, I will be satisfied with seeing your likeness. To be satisfied. This is the number one uh, benefit of a daily appointment with God. Satisfaction. Isaiah 58, 11. Do I have these scriptures down there for y'all? Okay. The Lord will guide you always. He will satisfy your needs in a sun-scorched land. How many of you know we live in a sun-scorched land sometimes? When you are feeling sun-scorched and worn out, let the Lord satisfy your needs. He will strengthen your frame. You will be like a well-watered garden, like a spring whose waters never fail. Here's what happens. We go to Him, we let Him fill us up, and then, just like it says in John 7, that, that Spirit of God becomes like a bubbling well that bubbles out of us and splashes all over our family and our friends. This fly has got to die. I'm going to bubble all over him, let me tell you. The Lord himself will satisfy our needs in a sun-scorched land. I love that, the Lord himself. So the number one benefit, satisfaction. Secondly, a regular quiet time with God provides a connection to the power source. There those scriptures are. Power source. John 15, 5 says, I am the vine and you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Because you know what? Apart from God, we can't do anything right. We all carry around in our pockets these computers, right? We've all got a computer in our pocket. Our very own handheld Pac-Man right here. We can play the game without putting the quarter in. How about that? But we have to charge it up. We have to plug it in at night, right? We got to get plugged in. We got to plug ourselves in to the Word of God to get charged up. We need to be in His presence every day and His Word continually. If not, we cut off the flow of sap that would have produced fruit for His pleasure and rewards in eternity. If we choose to abide in Him, to intertwine our lives with His, to wrap ourselves around Him and stay close to Him, then we'll bring forth much fruit. It's your choice. It's my choice as to whether we want to abide in Him. Having a time set aside each day to spend with Him is like getting charged up, getting connected to the power source. Number three, a regular quiet time helps us to renew our minds. This is hugely important. Remember I talked about yesterday recognizing Satan's lies. One of the ways that we can recognize Satan, Satan's lies is by being so full of the truth of God's word that we know a lie when we hear it. So the way that we renew our minds is by being in the word of God. Romans 12, 2. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is is good, pleasing, and perfect will. Here is, um, here's another translation of that. Don't copy the behavior and customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. Changing the way you think. Um, the Bible study that's in the, the uh, uh, tabernacle that I wrote called Metamorphosis of the Mind, it's all about this, renewing your mind, changing the way that you think, recognizing lies. Um, enough of that. Here's the deal. 
We have an enemy who wants us to believe the lies of this world. He does not want us to believe the truth of God's word. So when we start reading and believing God's word, we transform and change into a new person. So when we get up in the morning, we spend time in God's word, what we're doing is renewing our mind, renewing our mind, renewing our mind. Here's a word picture for you. I love football. I love to watch football. I love to play football. I like the way I feel better after I've watched football than after I've played football. You know what I'm saying? There's little boys out here playing football, and I so want to say, I'm open, I'm open. I did to one little guy, and he threw it to me. But then when I threw it back to him, it was not a spiral. And so I was embarrassed, and I haven't done it since. And so anyway, um, I want you to think about a receiver. Uh, somebody like Tony Gonzalez or Jeremy Macklin, whose names you don't know. Who is a Detroit Lions re receiver? Oh, who, was the receiver? who is? Who's a Detroit Lions receiver? Okay, that guy, what he said. Okay, all right. Think about the receiver, okay? With the receiver, he goes up. He knows he's going to catch the ball, right? And when he catches the ball, he knows he's going to get hit. And the guy who hits him not only wants to tackle him, the guy who hits him wants to strip the ball from him, right? Okay, Satan is the guy who's going to hit you. The word of God is the ball, okay? He knows you've got the Word of God in your hands, and He wants to strip it from you. He wants you to drop the Word of God. He's going to hit you hard, and He wants you to forget the truth of God's Word. He wants you to forget everything and take you down good and cause you to forget what you read this morning. He certainly does not want to see your life transformed by the Word of God. But our power source is stronger, and Jesus wins. Amen. Yep. So deciding that you're going to start doing this spiritual discipline of having a quiet time every morning, Satan doesn't want you to make choices to change your life, to move closer to the Lord. He wants to see you live in defeat. But when we make decisions to try to change our lives and begin to incorporate these kinds of disciplines in our life, um, the enemy doesn't want us to be successful in these things. He wants to hit us hard. He wants to knock us down. He wants to make us feel like failures and that we can't do it. So why even try? So if you fall down, get back up again. Grab a hold of the ball again and start over again. Come back to the huddle. Go back to your church. Find your brothers and sisters and say, you know what, I'm going to try again. I'm going to start over. I'm going to start this week. I'm going to have... I'm going to have a daily quiet time. Remember that lady, that crazy lady who came up here from Kansas City? She said we should do this every day. I'm going to start again. Little by little, inch by inch by inch by inch, day by day by day by day, we do these disciplines, right? Don't let the enemy win. Don't let him. All right, a regular time. Oh, oh I love this. A regular time with, uh, with the Lord provides direction for your day. Psalm 143.8 says this, Let me experience your faithful love in the morning, for I trust in you. Reveal to me the way I should go, because I long for you. Listen to the emotion in that voice. Let me experience your faithful love. I long for you. Listen to that intense emotion. Do you ever wonder what you're supposed to do? Where you're supposed to go? How you're supposed to spend your time? A regular daily quiet time gives us a forum in which we can seek God's will. Without spending time with them, how can you make your decisions? 
Your morning quiet time is like a, a daily military briefing. It's where you can receive your orders for the day. So last summer, I was on my way to VBS, and I was taking my grandchildren to VBS, and we came in one door of the sanctuary, had to walk across the sanctuary to get over to the kids' church area, right? So I have Jude, who was about seven, and Jade, who was six at the time, and we're walking past the tech booth, the sound booth, right? And there's one guy up in the sound booth. The rest of the sanctuary is empty. I don't even know where this came from, but y'all, it was the most precious thing. We're walking past the sound booth, and um, all of a sudden, my grandchildren stop, and they turn toward Mike, who's standing in the sound booth, and Jude just salutes. <laughs> and Jade throws a kiss, and then they keep on walking, right? Just a salute, and a throw and a kiss, and they keep on walking, right? And I thought, that's the most precious thing ever. I heard later that Mike then has been requiring his wife to salute and throw him kisses as she walks by. But I thought, that's what we're doing in the morning when we, when we seek the Lord. We're like, Lord, yes, Lord, what can I do for you today, sir? And I love you. I love you. I love you. Right? We're just presenting ourselves to God. We're saying, Lord, here I am. I'm your servant. How can I serve you today, General God? or way more than general, right? I love you. I adore you. Most high God, how can I serve you today? How can I serve you today? You give me direction because you know what's going to happen. So, these are our things. Satisfaction, power, renewing our mind, and direction. All right. Yes, throw kisses to the Lord. <laughs> All right, Psalm 119. Your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. That very familiar scripture. By your words, I can see where I'm going. They throw a beam of light on my dark path. I've committed myself and I'll never turn back from living by your righteous order. Now, I know that much of our life is already planned for us. We have these responsibilities and routines that we carry out every day. You've got to do the laundry. You've got to go to the grocery store, right? You have basic requirements that are part of our, our way of living. Some people have to go to work. Sorry, guys. Someday you'll be old like me. You, you don't have to do that anymore. Some people take care of children. There's all kinds of things that you have to do, but... So, but in the midst of that routine, I believe that God has divine appointments for us. And so when we, when we uh, come to him and ask him to direct our steps...